Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 46 to 55. Again, our scripture reading is Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 46 to 55. And then our sermon passage is finally, at last, back in uh, 1 Samuel, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. So we're finally getting back to that passage you thought we were going to be in about a month ago or so. Uh, 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 to 10. First, we'll begin reading in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 46 to 55. And brothers and sisters, I remind you once again, as always, this is the Word of God. This is the Lord speaking to you. Pray for the Lord to give you ears to hear. Pray that God's Spirit would cause you to understand what He is saying to you now. And give your full attention as God's Word is now read. Luke chapter 1 verses 46 to 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant, For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And now turning to 1 Samuel chapter 2 verses 1 to 10. And I believe that you will hear the similarities between these two passages. 1 Samuel 2 1 to 10. And, And Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not the arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He makes them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. 
This ends the reading of God's inerrant, inspired, infallible, holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word and for this portion of it. Lord, we understand, we know from our own experience and from watching others that your word is sometimes difficult to understand. And so we pray that you would give us understanding by your spirit. We pray that you would help us to hear what you are saying, what you are telling us. We pray, dear Lord, that as we grow to understand these portions of your word that we have just heard read, that you would cause us to sing out in praise of your holy name. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, when last we were in the book of 1 Samuel, about a month ago, if you can believe that, we read at that point of how Hannah, after Samuel had been weaned, perhaps as many as three years after his birth, how Hannah went to Shiloh to pay her vow and left her son there at the tabernacle where Eli served as the high priest. And after she did that, at the end of uh, the next verse after our passage this morning in in chapter 2, verse 11, we read there a few weeks ago, Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. But in between that time that Hannah left Samuel at the tabernacle and Elkanah and Hannah and the rest of the household took their leave of Shiloh and headed back home, Hannah lifted up her voice in song to the Lord. She worshipped him there. And we saw how Hannah's will had been so well tuned to the will of her heavenly father that she wanted what he wanted, in this case for her to give up her firstborn. And as far as she knew at that point, her only child, her only son, to give him up in service to the Lord. And this hymn is evidence of the fact that Hannah did not give up her son grudgingly. She didn't do so half-heartedly. She gave him up to the Lord willingly. She was joyful about it. She did so worshipfully. Now, Hannah is a part, she is one part of a long line of people in the Bible who seem to spontaneously break out into song in worship to the Lord. It's almost like a musical where for some strange reason people just start singing and we don't understand it, but it's perfectly natural that they're doing so. From the first song in the Bible, the song of Moses in Exodus chapter 15, after Yahweh had brought Israel through the Red Sea, to the last song in the Bible in Revelation chapter 15, which is also described as the song of Moses, where the people gathered before the throne of God, sing out to his glory. And in between, we read accounts of Moses' sister, Miriam, singing in Exodus chapter 15. We read of Balaam, who has a series of these oracles in song form in Numbers 25. Deborah, the judge, along with Barak, sing in Judges chapter 5. David, the author of many of the Psalms, broke into song in 2 Samuel 22, after the Lord had delivered him from uh, from the hand of Saul. And in the New Testament, Mary breaks into song after Elizabeth, her cousin, is filled with the Holy Spirit and declares to Mary, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Mary worshipped God in what has become known as the Magnificat. 
God's people throughout history have sung praises to his holy name because of his steadfast faithfulness in delivering us out of impossible circumstances. Now, for the purposes of this sermon, I've followed Dale Ralph Davis's divisions and his commentary on 1 Samuel because I could come up with nothing that was better than what he had already done. I have taken the liberty to title the sermon points this morning after uh, hymns. We'll get to those in a moment. But the thought that I wish for you to consider during the sermon is this. God prevails against all of his and our enemies And because of that, he is worthy of all our worship. God prevails against all his and our enemies. And because of that, he is worthy of all our worship. The first point of the sermon this morning is titled, His Eye is on the Sparrow. The second point is, This is my Father's world. And the third point this morning is, Wondrous King, All-Glorious. Again, his eyes on the sparrow. That's the first point of the sermon. The second point, this is my father's world. And the third point, wondrous king, all glorious. Let's look first at his eye is on the sparrow. Obviously, this morning so far, I've been referring to our passage as Hannah's hymn. But verse 1 says that Hannah prayed and said. So which is it? Is it a prayer or is it a song? Well, the answer is yes. And amen, verily, I say unto you, yes, it is both. Hannah prayed to Yahweh, but did so in poetic verse, in the form of a song. And so by way of understanding, application, the the hymns and the psalms and the spiritual songs that we sing in our congregation in a service of worship, these are prayers. Have you ever thought of it that way? That when you sing these hymns, when you sing out of the hymnals, that you are singing in a unison a prayer to the Lord. That is essentially how our singing functions in a worship service. And that's exactly what Hannah is doing. She's she's singing this prayer to the Lord. When you sing hymns at home, when you hum them to yourselves, when you think about the words, you are in essence uttering a prayer to the Lord, and you could do far worse than to hum along with these hymns that we find in our hymnal. Prayer, as we know, is an inherently worshipful act. If you are praying to the true and living God as one who has faith in Him, you are worshiping the Lord in that act of prayer. And so in verse 1, Hannah lifts her voice and she says, My heart exalts in Yahweh. My strength or my horn, some of your translations may have, is exalted in Yahweh. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Now horn here, it serves the purpose. In some translations, newer, or, sorry, later versions of the ESV have horn. Older versions of the ESV have strength. That's what it means. The years-long experience of sorrow and pain and suffering under the torments of Peninnah were shattered by the birth of Samuel just a few years prior to Hannah crying out in this song. But even now, as Hannah has just given up her son to serve in the tabernacle, she betrays no bitterness. There seems to be no anger at the Lord for making her pay her vow, carrying out what she promised to do. She exalts in Yahweh. Rather than feeling defeated by leaving her son with the high priest to worship the Lord there, she says that her horn is exalted. Her strength is renewed. 
But she doesn't know it yet. But her son is going to be the one who anoints the first two kings of Israel. But despite her ignorance of what will happen to Samuel in the future, she trusts implicitly in what God is doing now. She doesn't need to know how God will use her son. She trusts in him. In the last part of verse 1, Hannah expresses her lack of concern about what her enemies may try to do because she knows that Yahweh has already saved her and for that she rejoices. Obscure little Hannah from a podunk little town in a podunk country who was heard by the high king of heaven whose prayers were answered. She is too busy exulting in the Lord to be bothered by her enemies. She is confident that their plans will amount to nothing. And so in verse 2, she sings, There is none holy like Yahweh, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. This great God who is holy other, who is the creator of all things, is taking care of this one of his creatures, this lowly woman, who's only food when they used to go up to Shiloh to, to offer their worship to the Lord, to offer sacrifices. Her only food that she would take were the bitter tears that she cried because of the torments of Peninnah. There is no God like Yahweh because there is no other God. And though she says that she derides her enemies in verse 1, listen to her words. They're not derisive at all. In the words of one commentator, instead of gloating over her enemies, which is what you might expect her to do based on the ending of verse 1, you think she's going to go into this, this derisive uh, 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 verse. She doesn't. Instead of gloating over her enemies... Uh, one commentator says that she sings the matchlessness of God. This is the direct message clearly proceeding out of her wide open mouth with which she confronts friend and foe alike without exception. She doesn't deride. She glorified. We ought to take our cue from Hannah. Rather than mock and deride our enemies, we would do far better than to, to, to sing about the matchless worth of Almighty God. And notice that Hannah says that it is because she rejoices in God's salvation that she derides her enemies. Exalting in the living and true God in worship lays all other so-called gods to waste and causes God's enemies to be made low. And so in our worship of the living and true God, that is what we are doing in our exaltation of God on high. All other gods are shown to be false. And all enemies of the Lord, our enemies, they will be brought low. Because for so long Hannah's primary enemy, at least the one that we know about, was Peninnah, it's easy to assume that in verse 3 Hannah is speaking directly to her. But the verbs in verse 3 have shifted from the singular form, I, me, my, to the plural, y'all, if Hannah was from the south. And so Hannah here in, in verse 3, she's not addressing Peninnah, at least not Peninnah alone. She is addressing anyone who opposes Yahweh. And she says in verse 3, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. By Him actions, behaviors are measured. 
And so here in verse 3, she's giving a general warning to anyone who will listen. Hannah knows from personal experience that God lifts up the humble and humbles those who have been lifted up, the high and mighty, the arrogant. His eye is on the sparrow, and Hannah wants to know that he cares about them as well as him caring about her. Let's turn now to the second section of the sermon. This is my father's world. Beginning in verse 4, Hannah begins to sing about the bigger picture. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. And in the next few verses, Hannah will continue this theme of God humbling the mighty and exalting the downtrodden. And you saw the same thing in, in Mary's song, where she speaks about the, the humble, someone such as her being lifted up and the mighty being laid to waste. And it is because of these verses in particular that one commentator refers to Hannah's hymn as the song of the great reverser. The one who turns things around. The mighty are made defenseless, the feeble are made strong. Those who were once full are selling themselves for bread, while the formerly hungry are hungry no more. The woman who was once barren has a perfect number of children, seven. But the one with many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. He makes poor and he makes rich. The poor and needy he raises up and makes them to sit with princes in the seat of honor. The pillars of the earth are Yahweh's and on him on them, rather, he has set the world. Hannah has taken what she knows about God based on her own experience, what he has revealed about himself to her, and she has expanded it to a cosmic scale. She trusts in the immutability of God, the fact that he does not, that he will not change. And she knows that if this is how God has dealt with her, then it is how God deals with all of humanity. And so she is, by implication, calling on all who hear her to do just what she did, to cry out to the Lord, to seek his help, to ask for his deliverance. She's doing nothing other here, brothers and sisters, than calling those who might be hearing her singing this psalm, this song, this hymn to repentance. As S.E. DeGroff writes in Promise and Deliverance, the Lord had allowed Hannah to triumph over her enemies who were also enemies of God's grace. That's always the Lord's way. Those who do injustice and oppress others, he will bring low. And those who are oppressed, he will exalt. The world, indeed the whole universe, belongs to our Father and he is sovereignly ruling over it as the great and mighty King. He has the power to create and the power to destroy. He raises up those who are in the ashes and makes them great. And those who would dare think of themselves as gods, he humbles and makes low. Hannah knows that if God heard the cry of her weak and helpless voice, then he will hear the cry of others who are in need of deliverance and call out to him. His eye is on the sparrow, as he proved with her, but his eye is on all the sparrows. Because the world and all that is in it belong to him. Now we arrive at the third point of the sermon, wondrous king, all glorious. Now, some interpreters could find themselves slipping into a form of soft universalism if they looked only at the preceding eight verses. 
It's not that the verses themselves teach it, but that a person could read a type of universalism into, universalism into the passage if they tried. Now you are probably most uh, very well aware of this, most of you. The conventional wisdom of 2019 is that the more oppression points that you have, the higher the intersectionality rating you possess, and the more highly regarded by the society you are. And so those who are regarded as privileged in our society are the oppressors. They have all of the advantages that life has to offer because of the system they have built. It props them up in positions of privilege while keeping the underprivileged, underprivileged the marginalized, the oppressed down. And so if you find that you are among three or four oppressed groups, then you would be among the most oppressed and therefore among the most highly regarded by our present society. So say if you are an ethnic minority who happens to be female, who happens to be a lesbian, who happens to be one in poverty, you get the most points. You are esteemed as the most virtuous person in society simply because you have been born into these things. You have adopted these uh, lifestyles. You have, you have done these things. And if you want to read the preceding eight verses through that kind of interpretive lens, it is possible for you to see Hannah, Hannah's words in a way that exalts the oppressed and humbles the oppressors. You could read it in that way, but that isn't the way that, that Hannah or God the Spirit who authored these words understands the world. And verse 9 makes that clear. It's the antidote to that type of hermeneutic, that type of interpretive grid. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. Hannah, and most importantly God, sees the world as divided between his faithful ones and the wicked. In other places, such as in Job, we see that God's faithful ones are described as the righteous. And either way, the same group of people are being referred to here. And as in Job, as in all of Scripture, the righteous or the faithful, these are designated as such because God has declared them to be so. And so when Hannah sings this about the, about the faithful ones, what she's saying is that they are faithful because God has been faithful to them. Or they are righteous because God has declared them to be righteous. And Hannah says, if you are one of God's faithful ones, then he will guard your feet. In other words, he will keep you from stumbling. He will shine a light on your path. He will ensure that you do not fall down in the way. But the wicked, that other category of people, will be cut off in darkness. He will not guard their feet. There is no third or middle category of uh, group or class of people in God's word. Either you are one of God's faithful ones or, or you are counted among the wicked. Hannah and God's other faithful ones, his elect people, are oppressed and downtrodden by the wicked. But God, Hannah is saying in her hymn, brings about a great reversal. The wicked will stumble and fall. They will be cut off in darkness. Their strength will do them no good because they have made God their enemy. And he is mightier than they. 
And she continues this thought on into verse 10. The adversaries of Yahweh shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. God is the almighty king. There is none greater or more powerful than him. All of his enemies will be brought low. And for God's people, their enemies, God's people's enemies, are God's enemies. In the second half of verse 10, Hannah sings, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, if you're, or if you're aware of Bible history, if you're, if you're aware of where Hannah's hymn takes place in redemptive history, then you realize Hannah is singing about the king before there ever was a king. Saul hasn't come along yet. Her son, Samuel, is the king maker. He's the one who anoints the king. He'll anoint Saul, and then later on he's going to anoint David. But at this point in redemptive history, there is no king in Israel. And so this has caused some critical scholars to say, see, here you go, there's your proof. This wasn't said, wasn't spoken, wasn't written by Hannah. These words were not original to her. How could she dare think in terms of having a king when there was no king in Israel? But to believe that, to to say that, to take the stance of the critical scholars with regard to this passage is to deny the fact that God promised Abraham in Genesis 17.6 that kings would come from him. It's to deny the fact that in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 to 20, God sets the standards for whom may, who may be a king over Israel. God has been planning for his people to have a king over, over his people for, for centuries. And God's people knew this. They expected it. They were anticipating a king to be set over them. And so it's quite natural for Hannah to speak of Yahweh giving his king strength. Verse 10 stands out in another way. This marks the first time in the Bible that the word anointed is used in connection with a king. The word translated anointed is the Hebrew word from which we get our English word Messiah. The word Christ is the English form of the Greek word for the anointed. And so as one writer put it, thus Hannah sang of the Christ, Israel's true king, with whom Israel and all God's people will be exalted. Hannah's own exaltation was a sample and proof of that exaltation. In a relative sense, yes, Hannah is speaking of some future undetermined king of Israel. She hopes along with all of her fellow Israelites, that there will be a king set over them. But in an ultimate sense, she is speaking of the Christ, the Messiah, the high king of heaven, who will come as judge on the last day. In a sense, all of the good kings of Israel, and especially King David, they point to the future king. They point to the high king, the Lord Jesus Christ, David's son, but the one who was greater than David. Hannah had just delivered to the tabernacle the boy who would become the man who would anoint the first two kings of Israel. Her son would be, in a sense, the kingmaker. And yet she didn't glory in her son. She didn't anticipate the role that Samuel would play in establishing Israel's monarchy. She gloried not in her child, not in this son. She gloried in Yahweh. 
She gloried in the wondrous king who was yet to come. We too glory in the wondrous king, but for us, he has already come. Just as Samuel would help to usher in the kingdom of Israel by by anointing those first two kings of Israel, Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, ushered in his kingdom, and even now he continues to build that kingdom. Even now he continues to further it. Our duty as Christians, our duty as the redeemed, is not to gloat over our enemies, not to, to taunt the wicked. Our duty as Christians is to sing hymns by which we praise the living and true God. By exalting the Lord, our enemies will be made low. The Son of God was made low in order to raise us up. And in the meantime, between his first coming and his second coming, we are to sing his praises. We are to glorify his name. When he comes again, it will not be as one who is meek and lowly. When he comes again, he will come as the king of heaven and earth, who will reign supreme over his and our enemies. And he will raise us up from the dust to live in body and soul forever with him. Brother, that, brothers and sisters, that is the future hope for which we long and for which we live. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we do indeed thank you for the promises that we have in Scripture and all of the reasons for which we have to hope. Lord, we pray that for those of us who are in difficult, dire circumstances, profound struggles of heart or mind or soul or body. We pray, dear Lord, that you would remind us of the deliverance that you have already granted to us in Christ Jesus. We pray that in the midst of our struggles and strife, you would help us, O Lord, by your Spirit to sing out in praise to the triune God who has delivered us from all of our enemies. Lord, we know that we are still in the not yet in certain regards. We still long for the consummation. We long for that day when Christ Jesus will return and all of our enemies, all of those things that oppose us in this life, they will be laid to rest. We long for that day, O Lord. But in the meantime, we pray that you by your spirit would cause us to take up our arms as the church militant and worship you in the face of a world that opposes Christ Jesus and all who belong to him. We pray that you would make us joyful, that you would make us glad, and we pray, dear Lord, that you would continue to bring into your fold those who were once lost and without a shepherd. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.